is that highly evolved beings, uh, that is, um, sentient beings from other um, locations in the in the cosmos, uh, they they simply uh, see the essence and the source uh, that we call God in our vernacular. They see that essence and that source as being part of who they are. Mm -hmm. They see no separation whatsoever. Mm -hmm. They see it as um, evidenced in every everything in life that they see that everything the entire cosmos itself uh, is in fact comprised of that essential essence so they they really see that there really is only one thing there is only that essential essence but that the um, source of that essential essence uh, can be um, in fact used approached interacted with uh, and uh, it, it can be um, utilized as a means of power. Mm -hmm. That people uh, uh, use that source, like really not unlike plugging into a, an outlet you know, where you want to get electricity to, to turn your light on. That, that you can plug into that particular outlet, to speak metaphorically, mm -hmm. and turn your light on. And so I think that that's how highly evolved beings see uh, what we call God. Mm -hmm. They see it as an essential essence, as a primary or primal energetic source of power that allows them to experience themselves in the way that they choose and to create their collective reality. Yeah. You got to accentuate the positive. Wow! I feel good. You're listening to Karen Swain, teacher of deliberate creation, accentuating the positive, showing you a way to a better life. Accentuating the positive, it's not just fad, it's sanity. Who in their right mind would accentuate anything else? Hello and welcome to another show, Accentuating the Positive with Karen Swain. Always wonderful to be with you all. Well, look who's in the house. <laughs> Neil Donald Walsh is in the house. So excited to chat with you today, Neil. Thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Karen. It's lovely to be here with you. I appreciate the invitation. How may I serve you? Oh, how may you serve me? You've already done that. You've been serving me for years through your ability to allow great wisdom to flow through you to you and from you so uh, it's been uh, it's been a long journey with you and the wisdom that comes through you and from you and I'm so honored to have you on the show Stephen Simon I bribed him to have a conversation with you he's been on my show he was on my show last year and also in our group sessions this year so he was putting out his self-published books and I bribed him to speak to you. He said that he knew you and I said, okay, here's the deal, Stephen. I said, I'll help you get your book out there. You introduce me to Neil. <laughs> and he did. Nice. He's a wonderful man. I, I love Stephen a lot. He's a very sweet human being and I consider him my brother without the same mother. Well, he sent me a message this morning for you. He says, please share my brother from another mother a big hug and my gratitude for 25 years of friendship and also my undying awe for being able to stretch your 15 minutes of fame that long. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Oh, I love them. You got to love them. All right. Well, I've got a lot of stories to share with you and questions, obviously. Let me read. I know that most everyone that's probably watching our podcast, although there'll be a few that have just awoken or are awakening into their spiritual journey, might not know of Neil at at this stage. I doubt it. But anyway. Let me read your bio. Neil Donald Walsh has written 39 books on contemporary spirituality and its practical application in everyday life. With an early interest in religion and a deeply felt connection to spirituality, Neil spent the majority of his early years thriving professionally, yet searching for greater meaning in his life. He has said that this yearning led to a series of deeply personal spiritual encounters, which he experienced as a direct exchange with the divine. A series of books titled Conversations with God emerged from these moments, which have now been translated into 37 languages. Seven of the books in the series reached the New York Times bestselling list. How cool is that? That spiritual conversations are reaching the New York Times bestselling list. Conversation with God book one remaining there for over two and a half years, which is a celebration for humanity, isn't it, Neil, that that sort of information is on the best-selling list, the New York Times bestselling list. His latest book, The God Solution, published in December 2020, invites humanity to embrace a new global ethics based on a refined and clarified definition of God. The book poses that there is a single statement of spiritual truth upon which all the world's religions could agree and which could birth a new shift in a spiritual paradigm around the globe of such magnitude it would produce peace and happiness on our planet at last. Wow, that's a big statement. Do you think the book will do that job? Well, I hope so. I would be remiss if I didn't make the attempt. And I think that it uh, will certainly at least help move us in that direction. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Well, I read the book. Uh, Donna sent me the book and I read the book. And then this morning I was listening to some audio of uh, Conversations with God, book two. I read them many years ago and I had forgotten what was in them. And it was, it was really fascinating to read your latest book and then go back and visit the information that was channeled through you uh, all those years ago. What, what was the year that it first started coming through you? Uh, well, it, it, it was probably in 1993 or 94. The book was actually published uh, in uh, May of 1995. But the material, you know, the experience I had was in 1993 and 1994. Um, it, it, to the best of my memory, this goes back quite a way, but it was in the early 90s. Have you found, it's a question that's just occurred to me, that that sensation that you experienced that night when it started coming to you has happened, has maintained over the, the years, or does it feel so normal to you now? It's just a part of you. Uh, well, the, the answer is yes to both questions. Mm-hmm. It, it, it has maintained, uh, and it has brought that, that feeling that I had the very first night, a feeling of almost tearful, joyful tears of, of bliss, and um, gosh, a, a kind of a mixture of, of surprise and, and gratitude for um, the uh, 
for the moment as it was occurring. And the second part of your question, it has become nevertheless, um, I don't want to say routine, but something that I no longer find to be so quite so unusual or unexpected in my life. I've come to expect, really, that when I seek the wisdom of divinity, that it will flow through me, as me, in me. And I've also come to realize that the same is true of everyone, mm -hmm. that I'm obviously not the only person uh, for whom that is true, but that uh, the wisdom of divinity is embedded in every living sentient being, although not every living sentient being may be uh, taking advantage of that or even believing it, but, but that it is there for every person and that every person who does believe it, and I'm not the only one, but every, there are many, many who do, do accept that as their truth and that for people who do accept it as their truth, they have the exact experience that I have. They have their own, if I could put it that way, they have their own conversations with God. Absolutely. And they, have, they have their own interactions. Uh, so I, uh, in fact, I, you know, I, I love that um, a letter that I received many years ago now from a lady because the title of my first book was Conversations with God and the subtitle was An Uncommon Dialogue. Mm -hmm. And a lady wrote me a letter saying, you know, I love your book, but I have to say you, you put a lie, a, an outright fabrication on the cover. She said, you called it an uncommon dialogue. There's nothing uncommon about it at all. Absolutely. People have that kind of a, you know, a, a experience all the time, and I'm one of them. And then I wrote her a letter back saying, thank you for the correction. I stand corrected because you're perfectly right. Yeah. It, it is a, a very common experience. But, you know, when, you, when a book is published, they, they put an uncommon dialogue because they felt that the dialogue being published, being put out there in the, in the world, was perhaps a bit uncommon. So they could justify the phrase an uncommon dialogue in that sense. Absolutely. Well, which was depicted in the movie that you and Stephen made together about your, a part of your life, the homelessness, and then the, you receiving the information for the first book. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I hear you perfectly. Okay. And, uh, you know, sending what is that... She what is she saying? I can't hear her. What is she saying? Somebody help me. What? No, I hear God, you perfectly. Help me. Uh, uh, sending the manuscript out to publishers and being at, on an uncommon dialogue and having the publishers say, nah, and then someone took a risk. And, you know, as they say, the rest is history. That was, um, that was great to depict that in the movie, to get this information out to a mainstream world. Yeah, that that thinks about God and religion in a very in very different ways. Yeah, can I share with you how the books came to me? No, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> You'll be hearing a lot of these unexpected answers during this conversation. <laughs> okay, I'll share anyway. Okay, but... I was sure. I got to I got to tell your audience. I'm, I'm having fun with Karen because I told Karen that a habit of mine. Is, and I'm going to write a book one day called Unexpected Answers. And I like to give totally unexpected answers to totally expected questions. So uh, you can expect that for the rest of this interview. Go ahead. <laughs> and I'll ignore them. So I had read many spiritual books at this stage on my seeking. I think, I, you know, uh, Wayne Dyer, Deepak, Shirley MacLaine. 
and then a girlfriend came over and she was complaining and, and crying about her health issues. And she said something sitting on my couch. She said, the only thing that's helped me during this stressful time is those, the book Conversation with God. And I remember sitting on the couch going, oh, God, another spiritual book to read. <laughs> okay, I'll go get it. <laughs> and then I got it. And I have to say, it changed my life. I was working as a masseuse at the time and working in the film industry, catering, amongst other things. And I read the three books back to back within the week. You know, I'd get to work early and sit in the car and read them. And Neil, they changed my life. And when I speak to people who have read the books, they say the same thing. And I was living at a time in a little um, granny flat in someone's house. The lady that owned the house, her husband had died. She had a couple of kids. She was a single mum. I was a single mum. Then one day around the time I had just finished, I think, the three books, there was a knock on the door and her little son, Tyler, about six or seven, seven, eight, I opened the door and he was standing there with a parcel. He said, Karen, there's a parcel that's come for you. And it's funny, I touched that parcel and I knew immediately it was the book Conversation with God before I opened it. Didn't know who it was from, but I knew it. And I opened it up and my cousin, who was living in Switzerland at the time, who had arrived a few years before, um, she was, grew up in a very wealthy family. She dated lords and she, you know, the hobnobbed with the royals and the rich and famous. She had this unbelievable lifestyle, traversing the globe, going to the best A-list parties, arrived in Australia a year or so before, completely depressed and devastated with her life. <laughs> and I put her on her spiritual path. And then she went home to Switzerland and found your book and sent it to me at the time I found your book. The synchronicity was amazing, Neil, honestly, just amazing. So I opened the package and there it was, the book Conversation with God. Yeah, I just wanted to share that with you because it was an amazing synchronicity how the books come to you. Have you heard many of that from people? I'm sure, I'm sure you have. You, you know, honestly, I have. I, I've heard people tell me that they literally have gone into a bookstore and the book almost fell off the shelf. As if someone from behind the shelf had pushed it out. Or they might go into somebody's home and the book is on someone's coffee table. Mm -hmm. And they will say, you know, oh, what is this? And, and maybe their host might say, I just finished reading it. It's a really fascinating book. Maybe you want to read it. Take it with you. So, yes, I've heard many examples like that. And I think I'm not, I'm not surprised because I, I do think this is um, just one of the many ways that life contrives, if I could use that sentence, uh, that word, life contrives to bring us information that we are searching for or seeking, uh, and that, you know, or to put it in God's words, even before you ask, I will have answered. Did you find before you received the dialogue that books were coming to you when you were screaming out, when I say screaming in your head, like calling out to life, what does it take to make life work? Were you receiving any sort of literature or wisdom or did it just come as that flow through you? No, I wasn't receiving any kind of wisdom or literature at that point. Right. And because and that's why I was screaming, because right. I wasn't. I wasn't. Uh, and so I, I, I was just calling out to God, okay, you know, what does it take to make life work? <clears throat> and I, and if, I, if I had the answer or if I had been given, you know, access to other people who could help me with that, it's through their books and through their teachings, I probably wouldn't have been that desperate. But in my life, 
you know, it, it took me literally living on the street for a year. Mm-hmm. As, as you may know, I was a street person. That is, I lived outside with no home and no, no money. I would wake up in the morning and not have any cash at all and nor any prospect of earning any money. No one would hire me because I had had, you see, I had been in an automobile accident, uh, Karen, and and, um, I broke my neck in the car accident. And because of that, I was wearing a therapeutic collar, a therapeutic device that held my head up because my my neck would not support, uh, would not support my head anymore. I didn't have just a hairline fracture. Interestingly, I had what was described, I'll never forget it, I recall the exact wording because I was so shocked. The wording on the uh, radiologist's report said a three-quarter inch avulsion fracture of the seventh cervical vertebrae posteriorly. That's a three-quarter inch break in your neck. That's large enough to put a pencil through. And the doctor looked at the surgeon, looked at me uh, when I had come out of the anesthesia, uh, and he, he said, you have, you have no right to be alive. You, you need to know that. People who suffered that kind of a fracture, not a hairline fracture, but that kind of a break in their neck, in the back, just above the spinal cord, rarely live. And if they do survive, they're almost always paralyzed or at least partially paralyzed. He said, you've experienced neither of those outcomes. Mm. And then he looked at me square in the eye, man to man. And he said, you may want to give a thought to what is your life about from this day as you go forward. Because he was trying to tell me I'd been given, obviously, a gift that he, as a surgeon, had not seen very often in his entire practice. So, of course, when I got finally, and I was also like in a little granny flat, just like you, I, I found a little, you know, a little, um, little home in the back of someone's uh, large estate, and I could, that I could, uh, and I found I finally found a little job that I could do. A weekend job. It was just two days a week, but it was a weekend job on the radio because I had, I had some prior experience in broadcasting. So I had a little weekend job, which brought me just enough money to afford that little that little uh, house that I was living in, and maybe put a little bit of food on the table. But that was about it. I was barely surviving, and 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 that's when I sat down and wrote a very angry letter to God. Okay, okay. I got it. Obviously, there's something here that I don't understand. What does it take to make life work? What have I done to deserve a life of such endless struggle? So, somebody tell me the rules. I'll play. I'll play. Just give me the rule book. And after you give me the rules, don't change them. Because I had the experience that the rules were changing every time I turned around. And I couldn't even depend on what I'd been told, you know, before. So I was very angry, and I wrote this angry letter to God, you know, on a yellow legal pad that I had on the coffee table in front of me, for no apparent reason. And uh, that's when I began receiving the answers that ultimately became the book. By the way, I, I guess you may, you may know this, but I did not sit down with the intention of writing a book. It never occurred to me that anybody else in the world, much less millions of people, would ever see this process, would ever see the answers that I was being given. I, I was having what I, uh, what I thought to be a very 
private, personal, sacred experience. Mm -hmm. And I never even thought of even showing it actually to anybody else. Mm-hmm. Except because, but what I, whenever I say that, somebody inevitably in one of my audiences or one, one of the media people will say, Well, then why did you get the book published? And, and, and I say to them, Well, you know, I was actually told in the dialogue, you'll see it right in the dialogue. I was told you will make of this one day a book ah. and it will be accessed by many people. Mm. And you know what, Karen? When I was told that, I thought, now I got you. Now I got you. Because that's measurable. That's a measurable outcome. Everything else that I was hearing, you know, was conceptual, theoretical in nature. Could be, could not be. Who would know? Yeah. But here was a statement of fact. You yeah. will make of this a book and it will be accessed by many people. That's measurable. And I knew it wasn't going to happen. I thought, this is ridiculous. There's nobody in the world that's going to publish a book. I mean, self-publish, if I wanted to pay for it being published, but there's no legitimate publisher who's going to put out a book by a guy. I could just see, you know, I was in my head, I was thinking, yeah, I can just see the publisher running out to the workroom floor and saying to his editors, hold the presses, stop everything. I got a guy here who's talking to God. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I knew it wasn't going to happen. I knew there was one chance in a million that it was going to happen. So, but of course, in fact, it was published, and it within six or seven weeks of its release, became a New York Times bestseller, and it stayed on the New York Times bestseller list for 137 weeks, which is absurd for a nonfiction book. Fiction books, yes, but usually nonfiction books don't stay on the list that long. And I was told, you know, by my publishers, wow, this is really, frankly, a publishing phenomenon. This is unusual. Yeah. And and the book wound up being translated, as you pointed out in your introduction, into 37 languages and read by, who could guess, multi-millions of people in every nation on the planet. I know. And I, and I was Japan watching. Japan to Russia to South America, Slovenia, every place. Yeah, I was watching you being interviewed last night with the Slovenian couple. And then I was watching you being interviewed with another, I sort of geeked out on your interviews last night uh, and read your book. <laughs> so I've been immersed in Neil Donald Walsh over the last few hours. And um, I wanted to say to people too, that we set this appointment yesterday, we were celebrating the two 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 thing happening, you know, the 22nd of the 2nd, 2022, when we celebrated at two o'clock. And at 2.22, we're like having fun with all the two, connecting to the grid and meditating. Yeah, they call it Tuesday. Tuesday, I know. And our appointment today was at 2 p.m. Pacific time on the 22nd, your time, 23rd my time. So that's another synchronicity. Isn't that beautiful? Donna thought that was great. She's like, oh, let's pick that date because there was a few dates. But, yeah, so we're talking, you know, on the Tuesday, the 2.22. So I forgot the question I was going to ask. Yeah, here we go. When you sent the book out to be published, had you already written book two and three? No. Mm-hmm. No, in fact, they asked me when, when, the, when the publisher, first a, a very small, relatively small uh, independent publishing house, maybe they published 12, 15 books a year, perhaps in a good year. So they were a real small independent publisher uh, was the publisher who picked it up. and um, But then they sold it 
because it's, it was going crazy on the bestseller list. Mm -hmm. And then a large publisher, uh, uh, Simon and Schuster, uh, came along and, and bought the book from the small publisher for a handsome sum. Yes, which and, is depicted in the movie. And that's, yes. a, that's a great scene, actually. That's a great yeah, scene. It's yeah. exactly how it happened, actually. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and uh, because the movie screenwriter asked me to tell him the story, and I told him exactly how it happened. And then he wrote he wrote the screenplay based on what I, what I shared with him. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, no, uh, I hadn't written book two and three. Uh, but I was um, then I was asked by the publisher of book one, the major publisher, do you have any sisters like that at home? You know, the, the classic question, are there any, are there, do you have any sisters like her at home? And I, and I, I said, well, you know, I am, I am continually having this ongoing dialogue, but I haven't written actually what became, you know, book two and three. And, but I, then I allowed myself to continue to have the experience and I wound up sending what ultimately became book two and three um, to the original publisher because I made a deal with that small time publisher. You know, he, he called me and he said, you know what happens usually? A small publisher like us will just by luck run into a really wild, wildly best-selling book and then the author goes to the big publishers in New York and we are abandoned and we're back, you know, we're back to our small time business. So when I was contacted uh, by Simon and Schuster and they wanted me to know, they wanted to know if I had any more like that at home. I said, yes, but you'll have to get it from this publishing house because everything I publish is going to go through them. So what they did, they made a deal, the small publishing house made a deal with the major New York publisher to co-publish the books. Fabulous, yeah. Yeah, and the small-time publisher said he, he's, he never forgot me for that. He said, you know, you're the only publisher in our history who has done something like that. I said, well, you know what? You were there on St. Christmas Day. And you don't forget who was there on St. Christmas Day. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Shakespeare wrote a wonderful story. And it's the story of St. Christmas Day when they had a battle with their enemy, the soldiers and the king. And half the soldiers were, they were deserting. And the king's lieutenant came to him and said, your highness, Many of our soldiers are deserting because they, they see that across the way, on the other side of the line, they're, they're outnumbered five to one. And, and so they're, 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 they're deserting. And shall we go after them and punish them for desertion? And the king said, no, if you find any of them, give them each a bag of gold from me because they're going to need, they're going to need something to subsist on if they've left the army, because they were, of course, being paid to be in the army. And, and then he said, but, but what about those who are staying with us? He said, you know, double their salary. And so, as it happened in the story, in Shakespeare, they won the battle. They defeated the enemy, even though they were outnumbered five to one, because they, they fought with such loyalty and such courage and such bravery and such conviction that the, that the other army just laid down their arms 
laid down their swords and their shields. Said, you know what? We we can't fight with this kind of energy, and they deserted. Now, what happened as the story progresses? Um, I'm sorry, I'm taking too long for this story, but I want to explain my reference. There they were, and the king had granted them lands, huge tracts of land in the kingdom, and the noblemen were furious with the king and said, how can you give these ruffians who were just soldiers months ago, this title to all this much land? And the king looked at them and answered with the, with the reply that I remembered all my life. They were there with me on St. Christmas Day. Yeah. Where were you? Absolutely. He was, the, he was the one that took the chance that this, you know, crazy dude reckons he's talking to God and he's wrote a book about it where nobody else, as you said, nobody else would. But I remember in the movie, you were not only did the God force say this will be made into a book, but the person that was helping you type it up, your um, friend that you met at the radio station, she was depicted in the movie. Uh, she was encouraging you to put it out, like, can't keep this to yourself. This is too good. This is too good. She was encouraging you to share it with people. Is that true? Was that what, what happened? Yes, it, it, it happened after, uh, after I was told in the book. Mm -hmm. So she simply confirmed for me what I had already been told. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, what I do is I help people share their stories, which is something that I find I struggle with when people do start to receive wisdom or they've had experiences, near-death experiences, ET contact experiences, you know, some experience that's not accepted as the norm in the mainstream narrative. And um, I encourage them to share it publicly. They go through, this will never happen. That will never happen. I can't share this publicly. So it does take great courage to put yourself out there with the wisdom that, that you know, your experiences that flow through you. And, yeah, and to inspire the rest of the world. I think that we all need to inspire each other, don't you? I, I don't think we need to. I, I'm going to quarrel just a bit with your words. We, all, we don't need to. I think we're invited to. Yeah. Uh, and you know, so I, I don't think we need to do anything in particular, but we, we, we can be invited to do that. I want to I want to also quibble just a tiny bit with your characterization of me. I didn't experience that I had to be courageous. Mm -hmm. I didn't experience any courage at all because it didn't occur to me that anything bad could happen to me. I mean, even if people didn't believe me, something so what? So if the worst that could happen is that people would say, oh, the guy's crazy. He thinks he talked to God. I mean, so what? Uh -huh. So, you know, sticks and stones could break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I was taught that when I was seven years old. And so I thought, you know, what's the worst that can happen here? Mm -hmm. So I don't, I, I really didn't honestly feel, well, this is a really courageous thing to do. I have to screw up my courage. I have to be brave here. Well, there was no bravery involved. I simply sent, sent the, the manuscript to a publisher, this small time publishing house. I was shocked when they called back and said, we're going to publish this book. I said, you're kidding me. You're actually going to put this book out? Wow. You know, and I really thought, you know, if it sells three or 4,000 copies, it'd be a lot. Uh -huh. I know, who's going to, who's going to buy this? So, um, so there was no courage involved and I have to deny after any, because I, I, people try to paint me as this guy who was terribly courageous. Nah, I wasn't courageous at all. I, I suspect that what you had been through prior to the dialogue, the homelessness, it's like, what could you lose? You could end up. Well, homeless. you know what? You've, you've nailed it. That's Been exactly there, done that. Yeah. That's exactly right, Karis. That, mm -hmm. That's exactly right. What could I lose? 
-hmm. having lived on the street for a year, mm -hmm. not for a couple of bad weeks or a tough couple of months, but for a year of my life. And it's, it's really interesting experience, Karen, when you wake up in the morning and don't know how you're going to eat. Mm -hmm. you, you, you realize you don't have, you know, anything, any money at all. You're zero, zero money. And you have to walk down the street and hold your hand out to people and say, if you could, if you could give me anything at all, I'd be so humbly grateful, even a few coins. Because I knew if I could get a few coins from a few people, maybe I could go to the fast food place and grab a quick burger or a bag of French fries. And that's how I lived for a year, not knowing when I got up, whether I would eat that day. I never had a problem getting enough of money to grab a quick meal. But I, of course, I couldn't depend on that to pay rent anywhere. So I knew I would be sleeping on the ground for a long time until I could find a job. And, no, and by the way, just so everyone knows, it wasn't like I wasn't working. I mean, I'm sorry, wasn't looking for a job. I was looking all over the place. Mm. I would go, I would, I, would, I would apply for jobs at, at every business I could think of every day of my life. Mm. But they would see me. And then finally, one man was honest enough to tell me. He said, Mr. Walsh, you're wearing a therapeutic collar around your neck. You're a walking insurance claim. If I were to hire you and you made one wrong move, I'm on the hook for paying for your medical bills for the next God knows how many years. He said, I can't. I can't responsibly hire a person who's demonstrating that they already have a disability and they're not even totally healed. Yeah. So he said, you know, I got to be straight with you. Nobody's going to hire you. You better find some friends who can give you some money or find a way out of this because nobody's going to hire you. And I remember, this, I remember walking out of that place of business. It was a hotel. I was, I was offering to do anything. I said, I'll clean the toilets. I'll be a janitor. I'll be a doorman. I'll do whatever it takes just to bring a few dollars into my life. And he told me that. And I remember walking out of that hotel with tears in my eyes going, oh, my God. It's not even a matter of my willingness to work. No one's going to hire me. How do I get out of this mess? And then I, I did finally get out of it a year later. When I was offered a job, I had been in radio, I had done some broadcasting work, and I was offered a job as a weekend fill-in, making just a few dollars a week, just enough to survive. And I was offered a job in radio where I had to do nothing but just sit there and talk. Press a button and say, you know, it's 20 after four o'clock, 45 degrees outside. You know, I, I, I thought I could do that. I was going to say and talk, which you're good at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the one thing I could do without without worrying about whether and the owner didn't have to worry about whether I was going to, you know, re-injure myself or whatever. And he, he, he gave me the job for as a week. He needed somebody that to, to would take a weekend job. And I did. And that was the beginning of my new adventure. And that's when I started producing the material that it ultimately became the book that we're talking about. You know. It's interesting. I remember there was one point in reading the book because uh, you had some ambitions when you were young to be more godly, I think, to sort of join the church. You thought about joining the church, didn't you? Yes, and, I thought I wanted to be a priest. And I, and I remember uh, you were asking God, you know, what's your role in this? And God was saying, well, you're a messenger. And I, I felt like you were disappointed with that answer. And you, you mean I'm not like 
you know, the like a priest that's there to counsel everybody and God says, no, you're the messenger. Do you remember that? Well, yeah, I was told that in my conversation. Yeah. In my conversation with God, but I was not told that as a young man. When no. I was 18, 19, 20, 21, wanting to be a priest. Yeah. No, I was I was not given that information. I just wanted to join the I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be Bing Crosby and going my way. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to be, you know, a priest and and I was really serious about it. But then I realized, of course, my father refused to when I, I this was when I was 17 or 18. I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to go to the seminary. And my father said, I'm not going to pay for that. I got to be fair. My father did pay to put me into college. Mm -hmm. I never, I, I dropped out at the end of the first three months. It's another whole story. I lasted in college for, for exactly three months. So, but that's another chapter. But, but my father said, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to support you going to the seminary. I said, why? Why not? I really want to. Be. And my mother was so sad. She said, she said to my dad, Alex, he, he has the calling. Let, let him go to the seminary. And my, and my father said, he can make that decision when he's old enough to understand the implications of it. Mm. But at 17, he's not old enough to understand those implications. Interesting. And I said, what implications are you talking about? And my father you know, said, you'll, 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 you'll know when you get there. And it wasn't a couple of months later that somebody handed me a copy of Playboy magazine. <laughs> And I had never, you know, I was seven, I was seventeen, you know, I was, and I was not yeah. like today's, not oh like my. today's seventeen-year-olds, <laughs> but in seventeen, you know, back in nineteen fifty, whatever, fifty and fifty-nine, sixty-three, and so in those days, you know, seventeen-year-olds weren't quite as sophisticated as they are today. So, but I got a, I got my hands on a copy somehow of this magazine, and I looked at the, at the, at the centerfold. I had never seen a naked female body. Really? No, where would a 17-year-old back in those days? You know, I'd never seen a naked female body. And there it was in front of me on this photograph. And I thought, oh. <laughs> oh. I see. So if I want to be a priest, I can kiss this goodbye. And I had to, I, I made a choice, you know, I, I, I had to decide, you know, maybe my father knows more than I gave the old man credit for. And it wasn't just that. He understood there were many implications of spending my life in the clergy that I may want to take a closer look at. When I, he says, you make that decision when you're 19 or 20, I can support it, but not just barely turn 17. Mm -hmm. You were 16 years old a couple of weeks ago. It's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so, well, I, I, so, so I didn't have the opportunity. And I, in, in, in retrospect, I'm kind of glad that I didn't. Absolutely. Well, it's I wound up having many, many women <laughs> in my life. You, you did a lot of market research, Neil. But yes. it's, it's interesting. In the book I was revisiting this morning, uh, the conversation we got, book two, I was listening to the audio. Uh, there was a part there which talks about sex. It gets very into the sex thing. And you're asking God all about sex and God's saying, go for it. It's great. It's wonderful. It's not something that you would expect if, if you're indoctrinated into corporate religion. That God No, but, 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 but to about. be fair, but to be fair, so people don't misunderstand, God wasn't saying to me, go for it irresponsibly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, people that, have that to wasn't, read that, that part. Yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't part of the message. The, part, no, the message was... Very, was 
the message was simply that celebrate it, celebrate, celebrate it as a wonderful, joyous part of life. Not something you should be ashamed about or has to be done with the lights off and make sure that nobody knows what's going on. You said, celebrate your sexuality. That was the message, but not not to do it irresponsibly. Yeah, which is a really big. Uh, I have to say, I didn't have any religious upbringing. My parents were very. Uh, not into it, very sec- you know, secular. We went to a christening and funerals. That was the only time we went to church. Even when you know, third baby came along, my mother's third child, she couldn't even bother baptizing him. Like it was just irrelevant, unimportant. Something he suffered. Like, well, the other two were baptized. Why wasn't I? Anyway, but uh, yeah, but you know, I, I, you can't get away from religion, even if you're not. If you're, if you're not going to church or hearing it at school, you can't get away from the religion ideologies and how sex is a sin. And I had a lot of Catholic friends and they're all talking about it. So this is something that you're attempting to shift that whole dogma around the God principle that religion has been perpetuated. You know, we've got to have a new story of what who God is and what God is to us. I think Friendship with God, the book Friendship with God, you know, God is your your buddy, your mate, talking to you through you. That really depicted that relationship, rather than some power outside of you that's giving you demands and commands. And I agree with you. I agree with you completely. And that's the whole point of the God solution, mm-hmm. which is that what humanity could really benefit from right now is to simply redefine. God, to change our idea, change our mind about who and what we think God is, about what we think God wants, about what we think that God requires or demands, mm-hmm. and about how we think that the whole experience of divinity works in our in our life. And, and not the least of the new ideas, maybe have a new idea of who we are in relationship to life itself and in relationship to the aspect of life that some people call God. So, so that's what the God solution is. And it, it, it suggests that if we did change our mind about all of that, we would find a solution to most of the human-made problems Absolutely. that we're confronting on the earth right now. Absolutely. I remember when I was reading the books, I was really coming to the realization that I am God, that I am, I am God. And I was catering at the time. And I'd be in the back of the catering truck saying to the guy I was working with, I am God. You know, people say, use that expression like, oh, my God, who do they think they are? They think they're God. But actually we are. And I'm having this conversation with him and we're making, you know, food for the crew. And he's looking at me going, "Uh uh-huh, (laughs) uh-huh. Well, here's an anecdote you might have used. Here's here's a little um, analogy that you might have found useful. I was told. God said, you know, when you, when you put this out there to the world, tell them that you are like a wave of the ocean. A wave is not something other than the ocean. It's not separate from the ocean. It's simply an individual expression of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And it's a glorious, powerful, beautiful expression of the ocean. And when that expression is complete, it recedes back into the ocean. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly the relationship that you have with God. You're not saying that you're God, but you're saying that you're an individuation 
a singular expression of the singularity. Mm-hmm. And when I would put it that way, people could say, well, I, I can see that. They didn't have a hard time because they didn't think that I was being spiritually arrogant. Mm-hmm. They thought that I was being spiritually perhaps a bit unusual, but not arrogant. So they, they, could, they could hear it in a whole different way. Absolutely. Well, I talk about it a lot with all the shows that I do these days and, and all the sessions that I do and groups that I run. So it's a conversation I'm having a lot, that conversation with God. And I quote you often, you know, when people are sort of tapping into what they call their spirit guides or their spiritual team or their, that divinity that is guiding them. You could call it God. You could call it an angel. You could call it a dead relative. You could call it an extraterrestrial consciousness. You could call it God. You could call it the universe source, the creator. Uh, I was speaking to a lady that on the show the other day who had a near-death experience and she called it, I loved this, she was talking about taking a paper cup and dipping into the ocean of knowledge and having a little cup full of the ocean of knowledge. And I just thought, oh, I love that. Dipping yeah. into the ocean of knowledge. Like that to me is what God is. It's like an ocean of knowledge that I can dip into and bring through. I just loved that. And yeah. my cup runneth over. Right. Yeah, my cup runneth over with the ocean of knowledge. Uh, but anyway, I quote you all the time. When people say, um, you know, do I have spirit guides talking to me? Do I have an angel? Is someone talking to me? And um, I say that, you know, with interviews, people said to you many times, what makes you think that you're so special that God would speak to you? Because there was some idea that you have to be special if God speaks to you, (laughs) like the Pope. You have to be the Pope or somebody. And God said in the books, well, God speaks to everybody. It's not about who God speaks to. It's about who's listening. <laughs> That's precisely correct. Yeah. Who's listening? So, yeah. So God it, it was made very clear to me in my conversation. Very clear to me. I talk to everybody all the time. Mm-hmm. So don't let yourself feel somehow special in that sense. God said, you are special. Every single one of you is so special you almost can't believe how special you are but not special in the sense of being somehow better than anyone else so with regard to the fact that you're experiencing that you're having a conversation with god yeah she did say exactly exactly what she said he said hey i talk to everyone all the time it's not a question of who i'm talking to it's a question of who is listening who's listening yeah so I use that quote all the time when I'm helping people hear that guidance. Yeah. And, and it's there all the time. I, I, yes. even, with, even with you, Neil, when you had the guidance so obviously, you know, through the transmission and the download, you must have looked back in your life and recognized that that guidance had always been there in some way, but you maybe weren't listening to it or something. No, yeah, in retrospect, of course I had that right. thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All I could do was wish that I was more aware at the time. Or as my father used to say to me when he got older, he used to look at me and he'd say, so old, so soon, so smart, so late. (laughs) Say that again. So old, so soon, so smart, so late. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have a question I wanted to pose you. It might not be one of the questions that many people pose you, but I think about it often, especially after reading the book, the latest book what do you think 
because uh, when we're trying to redefine what God is as a human in humanity at large, I think about more highly developed consciousness beings who live in different dimensions or on other planets, what, how they depict God. Because with people that do speak to ETs, you know, there is this sort of human idea that ETs don't believe in God, like our God, our human God. Like, do they have a God? You know, and they have a very strong idea of, of what God is to them. Has God, the God source that speaks to you, spoken to you about that, higher consciousness beings, how their society relates to the God principle? Very briefly, what I've come to understand in my brief exchanges about that is that highly evolved beings, uh, that is, um, sentient beings from other um, locations in the in the cosmos, uh, they they simply uh, see the essence and the source uh, that we call God in our vernacular. They see that essence and that source as being part of who they are. Mm -hmm. They see no separation whatsoever. Mm -hmm. They see it as um, evidenced in every everything in life that they see that everything, the entire cosmos itself, uh, is in fact comprised of that essential essence. So they, they really see that there really is only one thing, there is only that essential essence, but that the um, source of that essential essence uh, can be um, in fact used, approached, interacted with, uh, and uh, it, it can be um, utilized as a means of power, mm -hmm. that people uh, that use that source, like really not unlike plugging into a, an outlet you know, where you want to get electricity to, to turn your light on, that, that you can plug into that particular outlet, to speak metaphorically, mm -hmm. and turn your light on. And so I think that that's how highly evolved beings see uh, what we call God. Mm. They see it as an essential essence, as a primary or primal energetic source of power that allows them to experience themselves in the way that they choose and to create their collective reality. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Beautifully said. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely have had that same conversation with them about it and yeah they see it so differently to the way the majority of humanity do there's no dogma sort of wrapped you know no rules that there's it's no religion wrapped around it i want to mm -hmm. talk to you about that can i can i talk to you about this so in the book in the latest book um the god solution you're typing away and your wife comes in and she says something to you about what about people start their own religions you had a conversation around that do you want to share that, what happened? And as I was reading that, I was thinking about something that happened years ago with the Conversation with God movement that happened in Australia, you know, around 20 years ago. And uh, someone, do you want to share what she said to you? Well, yeah, she said essentially that. Of course, she knew what I was writing about. I, mm -hmm. I discussed a book with her. And she said, I just had an idea. What if everyone started their own religion? What if everyone you know, was charged with the responsibility, made chairman of the board, so to speak? And, and, and how, would, how would it be if, if everyone individually could feel that they were charged with the responsibility and given the power and given the authority 
to create a belief system that would be followed by everybody else on earth. What do you think they would come up with? You know, and I, you know, I frankly had never thought of a question quite like that. Mm-hmm. And I, it stopped me in my tracks. And I wound up sitting there looking out the window for fully 10 or 15 minutes thinking, what a table turning over idea. You just turn the tables over. Wow, what, you know, what would people think? And so in fact, as I said to you earlier, I did include that as part of the book. I, I mean, I, I, I asked people in the book, if you could begin, if you could create your own religion, what would your belief system be? And what would you invite, if not require, people to hold as their truth? What would you invite people to hold as their truth? About themselves, about each other, about life and its process, and of course about God. Mm-hmm. And I invite people to take that journey with me in the book. And I don't tell them what I think they should think. I just invite them to, to get out a piece of paper and just answer the question. I guess we have to redefine what we understand as religion. Because I'll tell you what happened. So years ago, when I would read the books, I really wanted to have the conversations that you were having, uh, you know, the, discuss the, the principles in the book with people. And I wanted to join a group before the internet. I couldn't find a group, so I started my own. And I just invited a girlfriend, two of us, and then another girlfriend. Then I met someone at yoga, and then it grew, and then it grew and it grew, and I met other people that were doing the book. And then I found this organisation, the Conversation with God sort of organisation had grown. By this stage, I'd had a, got a computer on the internet. And we th- there were people that had set up this organisation where if you were a Conversation with God person, you could do homestay. <clears throat> so you could reach out to people if you wanted to travel to another city and stay with somebody that was like-minded. So there was this whole organisation happening. Do you remember any of this happening in Australia? No, I'm not even aware of it. Well, interestingly enough, and then we'd have groups, we'd have gatherings and discuss the book and I can't remember what else, but I did meet someone who came in Canberra who's still a friend who came and stayed at my house because we connected through that group and he wanted to come to Sydney and he stayed at my house. And yeah, so there was this sort of, but there was a bit of fighting happened. And I, I remember someone had reached out to you and, and asked for help. And you had said in an email back to them something like, well, don't start, you know, God had said to me, don't start another religion. It just becomes another religion. You know, don't, don't make your groups around the conversation with God books because then it's just another religion. And then you have to kind of come up with what that stands for, rules and, uh, you know, what you can do, what you can't do. Do you want to speak about that? And I thought yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I, I do recall that particular exchange. Mm-hmm. And uh, that person uh, in Australia was not the first person mm-hmm. that, that, that encouraged me to move in that direction, to create a, to do what I could to support the creation of a global belief system mm-hmm. and i've been i've given the same answer to everyone wow no wait a whoa wait a minute the last thing we need is another religion mm. so you know god made it very clear to me in the dialogue she said be your own authority in all spiritual matters mm. to not surrender your authority to anyone else to any one particular thought stream to any one particular dogma or doctrine, be your own authority and you know go within, 
because if you don't go within, you go without. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I said that not only to that person in that email, but I said it to many people. I don't mean thousands, but you know, to, to several people who said to me, mm-hmm. why don't we do something larger and create a global movement? And I said, you know, I, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and I also didn't want to turn out to be, you know, the Pope of the new, you know, of the new thought system. Mm-hmm. The last thing I needed was to be put in that kind of a position. So I, I didn't want to run the risk of creating something that would be no better than any other belief system that's out there. But I said, you know, if, if something in the conversations with God dialogues resonates with you deeply, by all means, don't throw it away. If it, if it, if it um, aligns with your own inner truth and knowing, then, then give yourself permission to step into that, noticing that what you've seen out here now, not coincidentally, is articulating what you've known Inside. interiorly Absolutely. all along. And I think that self-empowerment, self-sovereignty is what we need in all our systems, our political yes. systems. Uh, yes. Yeah. Do you want to speak about that? I mean, I wonder what you think about what's happening in Canada at the moment, because I've got Canadians in my group that are like, we're now under martial law. And it's, you know, there's like Australia, we've had our, we've had our go with the politicians clamping down and making mandates and laws and rules about what we can do and can't do. And what do you think about what's happening globally at the time, this moment? I, I don't have any particular uh, comment to make about Canada or any, anywhere else. I do think that there is some place in our community way of living for us to come to a collective agreement mm-hmm. on things that we feel are in our own best interests. To give you a simple idea, I do a lot of traveling, and for the past 30 years, I've traveled, frankly, all over the world. I'm not bragging about it, I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. But what it's brought to me uh, is an awareness of some things. Like, I found it interesting. I don't know why I thought this was so unusual, but when I first started traveling, I thought, you know, it is kind of interesting that stop signs and red lights and green lights all over the world. Now, who, who decided before there wasn't even electricity on the street? You know, there was no such thing as electricity on street corners years ago, but somewhere somebody decided, you know, this is a pretty good idea. And now in every country of the world, if you come to a corner with a red light, you stop. And if you come to a corner with a green light, you go. Because we have agreed as a collective, it works. Right. It's, not, it's not controlling us. Mm-hmm. It's not government telling us what we have to do. It's, we're not being dominated. We've collectively agreed that this particular law, stop on red, go on green, works mm-hmm. in our best interests. Unless you happen to be driving around suicide circle which is the Champs-Élysées in Paris. <laughs> but that's another whole, another whole story. 
but, but if you're not driving around that circle where there are no lights and no stop signs and no traffic traffic stops, I mean nothing. It's like you you it's like you you put your life in your hands going around that circle. But my point is that we have come to an agreement about not just traffic signals, but several aspects of life that governments enforce. That by government, if you please, laws regulate. If we can come to a mutual agreement about certain things, then we will probably not feel oppressed mm-hmm. by government rules and regulations. So one of the things that I love uh, that really spoke to me in the books was talking about, you said there are only two thoughts, or God said there was only two thoughts, love, Fear and, love. and love. And then you, you t- spoke about the sponsoring thought Every sponsoring thought is based in either two thoughts. Where do you think the loving sponsoring thoughts come from? Or do you want to explain to people what a sponsoring thought is? Yes, yeah, sponsoring thought is a thought that we grow up with, uh, that we are in cult- that we are culture culturated into, if you please, that we we we, we were born into a particular culture, or whatever it might be, and, and those become our sponsoring thoughts. And I had t- tons of sponsoring thoughts that I was given in the early years of my life. Mm-hmm. Nice guys finish last, right. you know, you know, I can, I can give you a, a hundred of them. Mm-hmm. And th- those are sponsoring thoughts. Um, but I was told in conversations with God, not only that love and fear are the only two real thoughts there are, that every, every other thought is based on neither love or fear, right. but that love and fear are the same thing. That love and fear are this exact same energy. Fear is just a distorted expression of love. But if you didn't love anything, you'd fear nothing. Mm. So if you didn't love yourself, you wouldn't fear losing your life. If you didn't love this, you wouldn't fear losing that. If you didn't love that, you wouldn't fear never having this. So so fear is an obvious expression of love. And what we are invited to do as an advancing species, as an evolving species, is to decide that there does not have to be an expression of fear in order to, for there to be an expression of love. Say that again. What we have to do as an advancing species is decide. That there is, that there does not have to be an expression of fear for there to be an expression of love. Okay. So there does not have to be an expression of fear for there to be an expression of love. Yeah. See, you know, what's interesting when the first time I ever said, I love you to a lady, Mm -hmm. the first thing I did was I was, I started to fear that she would not love me back. Right. And the first time a lady said she loved me back, then I started to fear that she did did she really mean it. Then when I really got that she really meant it, then I started to fear losing her. I hope I never lose her. Oh my God. So it was always a fear on the other side of the love. Exactly. And only when I got older, I'm now in my 15th year of my current marriage, only when I turned the corner and got a little older did I realize Oh, I can experience this love without experiencing any fear associated with it. Not because I don't think that it could ever end. God forbid I don't want to say something like this and have it come true. But I mean, things could happen. What if my dearly beloved, wonderful wife somehow became ill and left the planet? Mm -hmm. Am I saying that I couldn't survive? 
Am I saying that I would no longer exist? Am I saying that there's no possible way in God's green heaven that I could be happy? Mm-hmm. No, I'm too old. I know better. I'm not wishing for such a thing to happen, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty clear now who I really am. And I'm pretty clear that I do not depend on my wife to be the source of my happiness. Oh, interesting, Neil. Interesting. So as you know, I've been speaking with Stephen. We've had him on the show to share what he's been through lately and the book that he's written with Lauren, his wife, who did leave the planet. Uh, but he shared something with us, you know, that he'd gone through a lot of grief like three years and, and, he, and he shared and he loves sharing the story with you where he, he calls you and he's desperate in grief and, and he says, Neil, I'm out of my mind with grief. And you said, great, <laughs> you have to be out of your mind and in your heart. And he shares that pretty much on every podcast, which is a great reminder to get out of my mind. So I was thinking about now and how could the you... end of the story is I flew to him okay. on a plane. I got on a plane and flew to where he was and spent three days with him. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just a flip remark on the telephone. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. We spent some days together looking closely and being with each other and, and sharing the process. Yeah. And I helped him to feel comfortable with the process. Mm-hmm. And of course, the great teacher he's had is Lauren, who taught him not to grieve who, anymore. Who was the great teacher? His, his sweetheart. Oh, oh yes, yes. Lauren who, from the other side. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Who, who taught him not to continue grieving. She didn't say never grieve. She said, you don't have to grieve for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And so it became clear to her and then to him through her. Yeah. So, which is what his book is all about. Yeah. One of the things he says is, you know, even though he continues the relationship with her and the communication with her from her new home or her old home from, from her perch in another dimension, he still grieves that physical experience that they were having together anyway I was thinking about it and I was thinking now how can someone so conscious and and have dedicated his life to spreading this message be in so much pain so this is what we're talking about the love and the fear are the same you know that because I love you so much I'm in so much pain now that you're not here and it occurred to me that it's that demand that things have to have stay the same instead of being accepting of the new condition and then looking forward to what that new condition brings next. So it's that. If, if, my, if my wife died, I would never want the pain to go away. Really? I would, I, yes. But see, I, because I was taught in conversations with God, Neil, pain and suffering are not the same thing. Okay. Pain is simply a physical or emotional experience suffering is your decision that it shouldn't be happening right yeah the resistance so pain and suffering are not the same thing Mm -hmm. but i would wear my pain which i do with regard to certain events in my life i wear my pain as a badge Mm -hmm. i wear my pain as a medal on my my uniform 
because it tells me who I am and why I wouldn't want my pain to ever end if my wife suddenly left and she died. I wouldn't want my pain to end because I, 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 my pain says something to me about me. I wouldn't want to be a kind of person who wouldn't feel any pain at the loss of his beloved. That's not the person I would want to be. It's not the person I am. So I would allow the pain to be part of my experience. Is it painful? Yes. Years later, is it painful? You bet. To the end of your life, is it painful? You bet. Did you ever stop having the pain even, even until the moment you died? No. I had the pain until the moment I died. And that's okay with me because that tells me how true my love for that person is and was. I never want to not feel the pain, but I don't suffer from the pain. I rejoice in it mm -hmm. because it says to me something about me. Beautiful. I rejoice in the pain. Interestingly enough, when we rejoice in the pain, the pain does tend to leave. I had that experience once on the beach. I was, I'm not saying that this is anything like losing a loved one, but I was bitten by a blue bottle. I don't know if you have them over there, but in Australia, they're like a jellyfish thing and they have these long tentacles that wrap around you and it burns like hell. It burns like hell. And uh, it was during that time when I was reading your books and having great exponential spiritual growth and learning acceptance of what is, acceptance of what is. And I remember thinking and changing the narrative rather than saying, I'm suffering from the pain, from this burning sensation. I'm thinking, how is this burning sensation helping me? How is it? Maybe it's enlivening my body. Maybe the cells of my body are getting the electrical sensation and it's making me healthier. I came up with a new story instead of, I don't want this. This is terrible. Ow, it hurts. I was thinking, how is it helping me? And as soon as I started to accept the pain and love it, to actually love the pain, the pain went away. It stopped burning. It was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing, that acceptance of what yeah. is. What, what you resist persists and what you look at clearly disappears. Mm -hmm. Straight out of Conversations with God, book one. Yeah. Well, you said something really interesting about how forgiveness do you want to talk about forgiveness what it says in the forgiveness is the biggest obstacle to spiritual growth yeah that's what you said which is a interesting statement do you want to explain that no <laughs> figure it out for yourself i'm tired of explaining everything <laughs> okay. I, I, I was i was told i was told i'm terrible i was told in conversations with god that uh Forgiveness is the biggest obstacle to spiritual growth. Because if you think that you need to forgive someone, you are as much as acknowledging that they have somehow hurt or injured you, mm -hmm. which would be utterly impossible if you had already embraced who you really are. Mm -hmm. For this reason, we can say with reliability that God will never forgive us for anything. I love when I'm asked to give talks in churches, which I'm asked to do a lot. People invite me to come to church and give a little talk. And the first thing I say from the pulpit is, I've come here this morning to share with you some interesting news. God will never forgive you for anything. And the place, the congregation goes nuts. They don't, they, because some people even get up and walk out. 
And said, so, well, no, wait, not, let, me, let me explain. God will not forgive you for anything because you can't possibly hurt, damage, anger, upset, frustrate, or annoy God in any way. Mm-hmm. Any more than a two-year-old or an 18-month-old child would upset or annoy you. I said, you know, if you're holding a six-month-old baby in your arms and you're just rejoicing in the glory and the wonder of that new life form and the purity of that life form, and, and as you're loving that baby to pieces, that little six-month-old baby has an unfortunate biological accident. Vomits all over your face? Do you have to? Now, I wasn't even thinking of that biological accident. Oh. I was thinking of a different biological accident. But if they have that biological accident, do you have to forgive them? Mm. forgiveness isn't part of the equation because they can't possibly hurt, damage, annoy, frustrate, or anger you in any way. We're talking about a six-month package of utter innocence. Mm -hmm. Well, God sees all sentient beings in exactly the same way. And so for us to imagine that we need to forgive someone is as much as acknowledging that that person has somehow damaged us or hurt us in some way. When the truth is at the level of soul, we cannot be hurt, damaged or frustrated or annoyed or angered in any way. If we know who we really are. Now, can my body be hurt or damaged? Yes, but I'm not my body. I'm not my body. So, If I'm clear that I'm not my body, my body is just something that I have, but not something I am, then even if you damage my body, you cannot put yourself in a position of causing me to think that I need to forgive you. This is nothing more than the parable of the saw from the teaching of Buddha. And it's nothing more than the the teachings of Jesus who said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and do good to those who do evil to you. And if a man slaps you on the right cheek, turn and offer him your left. Mm -hmm. And he said something else as well. mm -hmm. He said, if a man asks you for your coat, Give him your shirt as well. And if a man asks you to walk one mile with him, go with him twain. And raise not your fist to heaven and curse the darkness not, but be a light unto the darkness that you might know who you really are. And that all those whose lives you touch might know who they really are as well. Do unto others as you would have it done unto you. And so something miraculous happened a few years ago. A guy named John Paul II, who happened to be a pope, was shot while he was in a motorcade in Rome six times. I mean, the shooter shot him six times and every bullet hit him. I'm not making this story up. It made all the news. He survived 
all the wounds all over his body. He miraculously survived. Of course, they caught the guy. They mm -hmm. jumped all over him immediately. He wound up being sentenced to life imprisonment. Of course, for trying to kill the Pope. In Italy, not a good idea. So they sentenced him to life in prison. But when the Pope recovered from his wounds, he went to the jail cell of the prisoner. And he said to the prisoner, in nomine patriotifidum spiritus sanctuam. He gave the prisoner his papal blessing. And he said to the prisoner, help me understand why you would do such a thing. And the prisoner gave him his reasons. The, well, how he felt, rightly or wrongly, that the church had injured his people in many ways mm -hmm. through these centuries, had done horrible things to his, his culture. And he, that's why he did it. And the priest said, to the prisoner, I can't agree with your solution. I can't agree with your action. I don't condone what you did. But given what you've said, I can understand what you did. And what we have learned since then is that understanding replaces forgiveness in the mind of the master. Mm. The Pope and this prisoner, here's a postscript to the story, became pen pals. They exchanged letters on a routine, regular basis through the years. And after the man was in prison for seven years, the Pope asked, actually requested that the civil authorities grant the man a full pardon and release him from prison. The Pope said, he's been in prison for seven years. He's paid his debts. And the civil authorities, of course, did what the Pope requested and let the man go. Not because the Pope agreed with what the man did, but understanding replaces forgiveness in the mind of the master. master. Yes, I heard you say that uh, on another show, which was something I had written down. Understanding replaces forgiveness. But do you, don't you think that when someone's so in believing their stressful thoughts of hate and revenge, that forgives, forgiveness is a first step to getting to this understanding. Yes, it's a beginning step for a beginning student. Right. And I don't yeah. think, and I, I make a, the point in my writing that it's not pointless or useless. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a beginning step mm -hmm. uh, it, uh, for a beginning student. Right. But it, as the student seeks and yearns to move into mastery, then the student even sets aside the tool of forgiveness. Absolutely. Realizing if, that understanding replaces forgiveness replaces in the it. mind of the master, or as you would say, the mind of the master. The master, that's it. But it, even, even gratitude can replace the understanding. You can be grateful for the experience of what you went through. I'm sure that you're grateful for many of the traumas that you lived in your life because they taught All you. All of them. All of them, right. And so whoever you know, didn't help you at the time, rather than forgiving them, you can be grateful. I'm so pleased you didn't help me at that time, because I learned, you know, something else happened, something, and, you know, I learned so much about who I am. Yeah, so nothing, can, nothing that happens to us is not for our ultimate benefit. 
And I've come to that awareness. Nothing happens to us or has ever happened to us that is not to our ultimate benefit. Absolutely. It's all happening for us and not to us, isn't it? Given what it is we are trying to do. Now, most people don't know what they're trying to do. Right. That's the problem. Most people don't know what they're doing here. Mm-hmm. You talk to you know 100 people and 95 of them will have no idea what they're doing here. That is what is life really about. But when we understand that we have come here into physical form, that we are in fact spiritual entities that have taken on a physical form, and when we understand that our purpose in taking on a physical form has been to allow us to experience life within the context of physicality that allows us to evolve, to become and to demonstrate who we really are, when we understand that, we see life in a whole different way. Absolutely. It changes everything forever. I could, of course, be wrong about all of this. I doubt But you doubt it. Well, that's what the books did for me. They called me into action. They called me into action. They made me look at who I am. I'm not my body. I'm not my desires, you know, for even to have money to pay the rent. They called me into action and they also made me see that I was also channeling higher perspective. And I loved that when you were having your questions, those human questions, and then God would have those those answers, that I had those same human questions and I had those same answers flowing through me. So when you would ask a question in the book, I'd think, great question. I'd come up with other questions that weren't in the book and I'd receive the answers. And so it had me really see that I was doing what you were doing so had me really see that I, you know, was also connected to that divinity that flows through all of us and I could have a conversation with it. And before we go, I just wanted to tell you, we organized you to come out to Australia. There was a woman when I was involved in this group, there was a woman that was so taken by the book. She sold her house. I don't know if you remember, and then brought you out to Australia for the first time. Do you remember? And I was a part of the organizing team that organized that. Do you remember that? First, I do indeed. First time you came to Australia? I organized yes. a book signing for you at the Aja bookshop, which was not there anymore, but at the time, the biggest spiritual bookshop we had in the, in the city. And you gave me this, um, this, this present. I'll tell you why you gave it to me, because there was a man that had... You said you, said you would never tell anyone <laughs> about our, our personal experience. I can't believe you're going to reveal our, our relationship here on television in front of everybody you, there was some people that had brought you presents and uh you were saying i'm going to travel the world this thing is like a bowling ball it's so heavy and you were talking to the woman i can't remember her name that brought you out here i can't remember but you were saying what am i going to do with this thing and she said well karen organized this for you why don't you give it to her and you said yeah great i'll give it to karen so and i drove home that day looking at this pink bowling ball in my car on the seat next to me laughing saying god gave me a present god gave me a present. i thought it was hilarious but i have to say neil when you're out in australia then i know you've been back many times since we organized a, a, a there was a theater setting at a university for you to speak and there were like hundreds of people there and you were on fire that day you're absolutely on fire and you were like funny and joking and stumbling around the stage like a sitcom, like demonstrating your stories. And I'm thinking, damn, he's missed his calling. He should have been a comedian or an actor. 
<laughs> but you have been a comedian and actor, haven't you? Yes. <laughs> and, I've actually been both. <laughs> right. And I was backstage and I remember I came and gave you a hug and you gave me the most extraordinary look like of confusion. And I walked away thinking, what was that look about? And then I looked down and I realised that I had quite a revealing top on. <laughs> and I thought, oh, now I understand. <laughs> I should have worn a different top today. Because <laughs> you, anyway, I must have thrust them into your face and you look quite perplexed. <laughs> I just thought I'd end on that. But it's been such an honour and such a, so exciting for me to talk with you today. And um, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been so beautiful. Well, thank you. It's been, it's been fun <laughs> and it's been lovely to spend this time with you as well. Well, there we go. A long-held desire fulfilled today to have a conversation with Neil about the books that changed my life. That was lovely. As I said, I had to bribe Stephen Simon to get the interview because I had reached out to his publicists and offices many times and uh, received knockbacks. And as, um, as both Neil and Stephen have said, you know, he receives hundreds of thousands of requests and he can't do all of them. One man can't do all of them. But what I've noticed about Neil is that he doesn't only speak to people who have big audiences. I've seen him speak, uh, especially recently, on shows that have no audience, you know, brand new podcast shows that have actually no one listening to them at the time. Brandon Thomas's fabulous show, what does he call, what's Brandon's show called? Expanding Reality. Uh, he's a great show. He spoke with Brandon right when Brandon first started the show. So it's not like he picks only, you know, like some people when you reach out to them, they demand to know how many listeners you've got and how many are on your, you know, they want to speak to um, people that have big audiences. And uh, so that's not Neil's criteria, but he just can't speak to everybody. <laughs> so it was lovely that he came and spoke with me today and uh, uh, it was beautiful to have that conversation. So the question I didn't get around to asking him, is that what did God tell you about what happens after we die? Uh, a question that is a very big question. We speak about it a lot on these shows, you know, on, on ATP Media. And he said that in his book, Home with God, he speaks, God speaks, you know, the, the wisdom that calls itself God that speaks through him speaks about that. Yeah, how the books, well, let's have a look. Everything changes, uh, conversation with God, friendship with God, communion with God. The new revelations, tomorrow's God, home with God in a life that never ends and conversation with God book two. So this is the chronological order of the books. A series of supplementary texts include When Everything Changes, Change Everything in 2010, The Storm Before the Calm, 2011, The Only Thing That Matters, 2012, What God Said, 2013, God's Message to the World, You've Got Me All Wrong, 2014, when God and Medicine Meet, 2016, and The Essential Path, 2019, and obviously the latest book, uh, which is called The God Solution, published in 2020. I wonder if that's his last publication. I wonder if he'll write another one. I think he's in his 80s now. He didn't say how old he is, but I think he's in his 80s now. But, he, yeah, he might write some more. Who knows? But let me know what you think. How did the have you read the books? Have you read the latest book, The God Solution? Uh, what do you think? How's the how's the message speaking to you and through you? And what did you think of our conversation today? It's beautiful to speak with him.
lovely yeah really exciting okay see i even put on some jewelry today i never wear jewelry when i'm on air but i thought mm, might put a little bit of jewelry on i've got drawers of it and i never wear it never wear it i used to be quite fascinated with jewelry not expensive jewelry like real gold and all the things just sort of you know fun jewelry and uh, i never put it on i never sort of think to adorn myself with jewelry you can see i don't wear rings uh, I have it. I just can't be bothered wearing it. It sort of feels like something else. Fuss, fuss, too much fuss on the body. I can't can't really wear metal on my body. Watches, stopped wearing watches 30, 30, 20, 40 years ago, I think, because they wouldn't work on me. And I find wearing even metal in bras and stuff like that interferes with the electrical flow of the body. I think when you raise your frequency, the electrical flow of the body is quite sensitive. It moves quite differently. So when I wear jewellery, I try not to wear metal, sort of, I don't know what this is, I think it's plastic. Anyway, yeah, thanks again for listening and watching. And uh, remember, I'm offering some courses this year with the wisdom that flows through me, who I reverently call the mob, or a prettier name is Blissful Beings. You could call it God. They don't give me an identity, although they say we've been many identities. I call them the mob because the first when I kept asking who, what is speaking through me because I didn't have that religious upbringing. So I couldn't come at it being God. You know, what is this guidance that comes through me? I had this impression of just many voices, many bodies, many people, but without identity. So it's like you're looking at a faceless, identityless mob. So I used to call them the mob, the mob. From my human perspective, I, I needed to put it in some sort of human mind frame it couldn't be just a stream of consciousness or an ocean of knowledge it had to have some physical form from my human perspective so the mob and then they said to me later i had a business called blissful beings massage business and a shop called bliss when i saw homewares and then a business called blissful beings they said to me who do you think the blissful beings are and i'm like oh it's you guys so i started to referring to them as blissful beings but i still refer to them as the mob you could call it God. God is not a name I use a lot because of the connotation that religion has had around God being some dude with a white hair and a white beard who doles out commandments. Uh, Neil also said in many of the interviews and in the books that God didn't create the Ten Commandments, which is another controversial uh, thing that God requires nothing from you, doesn't command anything. So, yeah, the universe or consciousness allows you to live and experience what you choose and then to make decisions doesn't command anything of you. Mm, interesting. How do you think changing our perception, perspective of what God is will change this world? I'd love to hear your ideas. Yes, I have mine. We need to raise our consciousness to a higher level of understanding. Mm, and I think our con concept of what god is and how it operates to us and through us is uh, is all a part of that consciousness shift in our world so yeah send me an email uh, or check my website out if you want to know what i'm offering this year in the way of courses and groups and uh join our inner sanctum next weekend sheila seppi is speaking as a guest teacher so there's two guest speakers this month we had Stephen and sheila is coming up I've opened this up to be free for all. If you want to join, just send me an email and say you want to be a part of it and you can come on the Zoom call and meet Sheila and ask her questions. So she identifies herself as a walk-in 
soul that took over a human body when there was a soul exchange when the other soul left the other soul was finished having the physical life experience and wanted to leave die and then sheila's consciousness or soul took on the body to instead of being born into a baby's body she was born into a adult body i think she was in her 20s can't remember i have had her on the show check out the show i did with sheila and then uh, do the work that she's doing in the world but what she, she came into a very ill body a very very ill body and she had to renovate the body or the body actually miraculously with the consciousness that she held healed in many ways it's a fascinating story a bit like william linville who also came into a very ill very obese body he was a walk-in his consciousness and consciousness soul came in and had to renovate the body and miracle healings occurred and now Sheila's doing incredible work, much like I am showcasing other teachers. She has her cosmic conversations every week, sometimes twice a week. She's promoting and showcasing other spiritual teachers, even though she has the most incredible story herself. She's like spreading awareness and consciousness with her wish alliance. And uh, yeah, so come and meet Sheila. She's fabulous. I love her. Just love her. I love everybody, but <laughs> I love to love. All right, love you all and uh, check us out um, in a sanctum with guest speakers and uh, check out the book uh, Awakened by Death if you haven't already. Bye for now.